It reminds me of when barefoot running took off. You'll remember 10 years or so ago. And you know, barefoot running's great. A lot of people really enjoy it. For some people it fixes injuries, you know, there's a variable response to it. And there was this argument that, well, that's the way that you're supposed to run because that's the way that we used to run. But what happened was, what happened with all these kind of paleo ancestral ideas is people start to want to sort of cosplay as hunter-gatherers, you know? It's like, well, let's not just take the principles home. Let's sort of have shoes like they have and try to have our diets like they do. And you know, that's kind of the wrong way to go about it, right? The right way to go about it is to say, oh, here are the principles we can learn from these groups. And now let's translate these principles into something sustainable and sensible here using modern bench science and modern nutrition science, as opposed to just, again, trying to kind of cosplay as hunter-gatherers. I don't think that's very effective. That's evolutionary anthropologist Herman Ponsa, PhD. And this is episode 151 of The Proof Podcast. Hey, beautiful friends. Welcome back to another episode. I hope you've been keeping well. Real pleasure to be here with you again. For those who are joining us for the very first time, I'm Simon Hill, host of this show, nutritionist, physiotherapist, and author. Today is a really cool episode. We welcome Herman Ponsa, PhD, to the show, the first evolutionary anthropologist to join us. Dr. Ponsa is an absolute wealth of knowledge one of the world's most highly respected voices when it comes to all things evolution. Over the past 20-odd years, he has conducted groundbreaking studies across a range of settings, including pioneering fieldwork with Hartza hunter-gatherers in northern Tanzania. In this episode, you will hear from him on what we can learn from the way our ancestors ate and how we should view exercise when it comes to our health and body weight goals. What I personally love most about Dr. Ponsa is his dedication to representing science as it is. No hype or over-extrapolation. What we do know and what we don't know. The simple truths as they stand today. With that out of the way, let's jump straight into things. This is evolutionary anthropologist Herman Ponsa, PhD. May you find it equal parts inspiring and instructive, and I'll catch you on the other side. One of the best ways to track our health is to regularly get blood work done, so we can take a peek under the hood and get a feel for the state of our cardiometabolic and hormonal health. You can do this with your local doctor, or you can use a service like Inside Tracker. The nice thing about Inside Tracker is they make the process super convenient. You can organize their phlebotomist, a person who draws blood, to come to your house or office to do the blood draw. A few days later, your results show up in the Inside Tracker app, and they provide lifestyle recommendations based on whether a particular test is suboptimal, normal, or optimal. I've checked Inside Tracker's lifestyle recommendations, specifically the exercise and nutrition ones, and I can confidently say they are evidence-based and in line with the information shared in both my book and on this show. 
they even added ApoB to their ultimate plan, based on recommendation from myself and others. It's also nice to have all of your lab results readily accessible in one mobile app, making it easy to pull up past results and see trends and patterns over time. Get 20% off the entire Inside Tracker store. To get started, go to insidetracker.com forward slash Simon for this exclusive offer. That's insidetracker.com forward slash Simon. If you're a long-time listener of this show, you'll be well aware of the scientific evidence that supports a high-fiber, plant-rich diet for good long-term health. And while I certainly believe in a food-first approach, there is a role for supplements to help optimize the intake of specific nutrients and address any nutritional gaps. Enter Emil. Emil is a plant-based wellness company with a series of products to help you optimize your plant-based diet. Two of my favorite products being the Essential 8 Multivitamin and the Optimal Omega Plus. The Essential 8 contains eight key nutrients that plant-based eaters often fall short in. And the Optimal Omega Plus contains a direct source of DHA and EPA omega-3s, same as in fish, but from algae. In fact, taking Optimal Omega Plus daily, which contains 750 milligrams of EPA and DHA, is equivalent to eating two to three pieces of fatty fish per week in line with the nutrition recommendations globally. To get your Essential 8 and Optimal Omega Plus, head to theproof.com forward slash friends and follow the link which will get you an extra 10% off your first order. That's theproof.com forward slash friends. Dr. Herman Ponzo, welcome to the show. Ah, thanks for having me on. This is going to be a fantastic episode. I'm super excited. I started your book about three weeks ago and I couldn't put the thing down. Thanks. It's, uh, it was fun writing the book. I have to say it's been fun doing the work the last oh, decade or so in this area and to get a chance to put the book together was a lot of fun. So what I thought, Herman, would be a great way to unpack some of the major themes throughout the book is to sort of split this conversation into three sections. The first being the anthropology and exploring what we know about how our ancestors ate and lived and why that's important. And then we can jump into the constrained energy expenditure model and, and what you found through your time with the Hadza about metabolism and the utility of food and exercise in promoting healthy body weight and, and how we can think about those two different tools. And then finally, with all of this information, what does this mean for us living in a, a modern environment? So perhaps we kick this off by defining evolutionary anthropology. It might be the first time that someone's heard of that. What does that mean? And what is an evolutionary anthropologist interested in? Yeah, so anthropology is this really broad field. It just means the study of people, right? So that can be anything from cultural studies to, to archaeology to looking at human relatives, the other primates, to genetics work. So the whole gambit, you know, fits in anthropology. And so it's such a broad field that we sort of subdivide it as a field. And these days, it's, it's common to talk about, you know, cultural anthropologists who do, you know, as you suggest, more cultural kind of work, archaeologists who are looking at, you know, the material cultures of the past, linguists who are looking at language, and then folks like myself who study what we call biological anthropology or in my case, more specifically, evolutionary anthropology, which is uh, trying to understand how evolution shaped our bodies over the last sort of seven million years since we split from the other apes, 
and both understanding what happened in the last seven million years and what that means for us living today in these sort of weird modern environments that we've built for ourselves over the last couple of centuries. And so tell me about your career in this field. How long have you been doing this and studying? I know you spent time studying chimpanzees, I believe, before looking at sort of modern hunter-gatherer tribes. How long have you been involved in this? And where did your initial interest in this field of science stem from? So I went to um, Penn State University. I grew up in a really rural part of Pennsylvania. Uh, for folks familiar with American geography, it's over sort of in the eastern side of the country, but far away from any of the major cities. So, you know, it was uh, pretty remote. And I applied to one college and I got in. And so I went and it was Penn State University. I had no idea what I wanted to do, but I took a freshman seminar in human evolution. And it was these two old professors. Well, they probably weren't that old. They seemed old to me, Jeff Curland and Warren Morrill. And um, they had fun just blowing students' minds, basically, for a semester. It was a small kind of 10-person course plus the profs. And, you know, just challenging you to, to ask questions like, why do humans look the way they do? Why do humans do the weird stuff that we do? Just looking at us as a completely different new way. And, you know, taking nothing for granted, kind of asking questions about everything and, and being curious about everything, what it means to be human. Yeah, it's just such a fun and refreshing way to look at it. And then you had this... You know, it wasn't just kind of telling stories. You had this theory of evolution, right, that kind of put it all together and also set it up as a science where you can make testable predictions and you can go out and test your ideas and, you know, sort through the BS and kind of get to what's real. And man, that was just such an exciting way to think about the world and think about humans. I was hooked. So that was, that was mid-90s. I was in college doing that. And I've been kind of working on this stuff ever since. I did my graduate's work at Harvard looking at locomotor evolution, so how the bodies, um, you know, how we walk and run changed over the last seven million years. Because of course, we're the only primate that gets around on two legs, which is kind of strange. And to try to understand that seemed important. And I was particularly interested in how, you know, on the energy efficiency of walking and running. And so I um, spent my graduate training, my graduate dissertation, looking at the mechanics of walking and running and how that changes when you go to two legs and how that changes in human evolution when you go from sort of short-legged ape-like things to long-legged things like us. Towards the end of it, I thought, well, this is fun, but you know, I want to know more about how energy is used more broadly because, as I like to say, life is a game of turning energy into kids, right? I mean, that's the core of it from an evolutionary perspective is, is how do you take energy from your landscape and turn that into the next generation? That is the evolutionary game. And so around 2006 to eight, with a couple of collaborators, we began cooking up this idea that we'd go and measure energy expenditures, total energy expenditures, all the calories you burned all day with hunting and gathering communities because nobody had done it before. And nobody had done it with the great apes either for that matter. So we knew we'd have to do that too. And the, the goal was to understand how your body burns calories both in a hunting and gathering context, which is the sort of ecologically relevant context for humans because we're a hunting and gathering species, but also more broadly how humans in a hunting and gathering community, for example, compare to other apes, chimpanzees, bonobos, gorillas, orangs. And so we started off on these multi-pronged project about, oh, 12 years or so ago and have been kind of putting the pieces together ever since. Very cool. We will explore the energy expenditure piece for sure. That's very central to your book and and really 
what I think is the most mind-blowing aspect of the, of the book and probably will blow many of the listeners' minds when they hear that. Before we do that, you spent a lot of time with chimpanzees and then looking at early humans. What's the difference between the diet of a chimpanzee and the diet of a, a pre-agriculture human? And then also in your book, you use the term opportunistic omnivore to describe humans. Can you sort of explain what that means and how you've come to that? Yeah, sure. So chimpanzees and bonobos, which are our closest relatives, the chimpanzees and bonobos have recently split sort of a million years or so ago, but that lineage, they're both in the genus Pan. And so they, at, at some point about 7 million years ago, you can imagine a population of ape-like creatures that probably looked very chimpanzee bonobo-like if you have that picture in your mind. Still a lot of argument about exactly what they look like, but probably quite chimp-like. And then over time, that population kind of splits. And think of it as two roads diversion in the woods, right? And one ends up being chimps and bonobos, and one of those ends up eventually, after a bunch of twists and turns, being us. So that lineage that leads to us, that's a seven million year lineage. And I think about it in three chapters. Okay, chapter one, You've got animals that are walking on two legs. But other than that, and their canine teeth are a bit smaller, and canine teeth aren't really, in primates, canine teeth don't tell you about diet as much as they tell you about social interaction, because males, in species where the males fight each other a lot for dominance, canines tend to get bigger. So baboons, for example, have very big canines. So canines and primates don't tell us much about diet. They tell us something about social behavior. And what we know about that first chapter of hominin evolution. So hominins are our lineage, anything on our road from after we split the chimps and bonobos. That first chapter for about 2 million years, they're like bipedal, which is to say they're walking around on two legs, bipedal apes with slightly smaller canines. The diet, as far as we can tell from the teeth, looks very ape-like. And what does that mean? Well, largely vegetarian, you know, fruits and, and leaves and other plant foods. Chimps and bonobos hunt occasionally. They'll hunt monkeys or they'll hunt small antelopes. So so probably there's no reason to think that these guys, these or this first chapter wasn't doing some of that too, but that's a small piece of the menu, right? It's a small portion of the daily energy intake of the diet is meat. The second chapter from about four to two million years ago is the genus Australopithecus. And there are a couple other groups in there, but that's the main dominant group is the genus Australopithecus. And if your listeners have ever heard of the fossil Lucy, right? There's a famous Lucy fossil. She's a member of Australopithecus afarensis, for example. And that chapter is also quite ape-like. The brains are not very much bigger than chimps. They're walking around on two legs. Body size is kind of ape-like. And the teeth, the cheek teeth are a lot larger and the enamel is very thick. And we think they're eating kind of low quality, you know, lots of fibrous, bulky, foliagey kind of foods, at least as a staple or a backup and perhaps they prefer ripe fruits and other stuff that they can get them, but they are also able to, and they're depending on to some extent, so this low quality vegetation. Okay, so those first two chapters are very ape-like in terms of their ecology. Brain size is very ape-like. They're walking around on two legs. And then around two, two and a half million years ago, there is the big change. And this is the change to hunting and gathering. And we can see this in the archeological record because you see cut marks on animal bones in these archaeological sites, you see a lot more stone tools, this proliferation of stone tools. And it is, you know, they haven't given up the plant part of the diet, but they've added this meat part of the diet. Okay, so they're definitely hunting and scavenging. They're getting access to these big animals, big carcasses. You see cut marks on things like zebra, which are quite large, right? Other big ungulates. 
And so meat becomes a big part of the diet. And that is the beginning of hunting and gathering. And that is a sea change in the way that these guys are getting their calories. Because now your portfolio, your diet portfolio is not just plants or not even primarily plants. Now it's this balance of things, some plants, some animals, some members of the group can go after the high risk, high reward things like animals. Some members of the group can go after the low risk. You know, it's definitely going to be there kind of plant staples. You agree to share at the end of the day. I mean, this is like, you know, not all this would have come in all at once, of course, poof, it would have sort of gradually grown. But once it gets going, it's a world beater and you cannot beat it other than to do it better. And so you see this just evolutionary takeoff of hunting and gathering. Brains accelerate, get bigger and bigger. Teeth get smaller because you can, you know, you don't, don't need big teeth to digest the well, you know, higher quality foods. Around a million years ago, fire gets in the mix. Uh, stone tools get more complex. And so that, that is the beginning of it. Hunting and gathering marks the beginning of the genus Homo, which is our genus, of course, we're Homo sapiens. That is the uh, harbinger of what it means to be human, is this hunting and gathering strategy. And so that's when we become these opportunistic omnivores, because we're able to survive and thrive anywhere on the globe, right? And it's because no matter where we are, we can just pick our mix, whatever that mix is in the local landscape of animals and plants and make it work. Perfect. And in your book, you mentioned that there is not one paleo diet. I want to put a pin in that because I want to come to that. I think that's a really key part of your communication, that there is this wide sort of variation. I want to step into the Hadza. And essentially, what was it that drew you to this group of people that are living today? How long have you spent with them? And while we're on this topic of diet, what is their diet like in that area of the world? Yeah, so uh, the Hadza are one of the last living groups of, of hunter-gatherers on the planet. And so, you know, why do so many people want to work with the Hadza, uh, me included? Well, because they're one of the few groups left where we can go and observe a traditional hunting and gathering group that's still intact and still doing it in this intact ecosystem. So they live in northern Tanzania in the sort of dry savanna habitat there. So you've got acacia trees and big baobab trees and lots of grass and lots of open space. It's, you know, the kind of landscape that's got zebra and giraffe and warthog and lots of snakes and all that, you know, all that kind of good stuff. And the Hadza live in grass houses in little camps on that landscape. And they wake up and every morning, you know, every morning you wake up and you got to feed yourself that day. So women go off and gather plant foods. They dig for wild tubers, for example, or you know, so wild roots, basically. Uh, or they gather berries, or um, they also process baobab fruits. Uh, it's a big part of the diet. Men go off and hunt using bow and arrow that they've made themselves. And they'll hunt anything from birds all the way up to zebra and giraffe. And men also will uh, get honey. So honey is a big part of the diet. And men will climb up into these big baobab trees and, and chop into the limbs because the bees tend to make their hives in the sort of hollow limbs of these big trees. And they'll just bring out you know, quarts of honey, uh, liters of honey out of these uh, hives. And so that's the diet. Plants, berries, root vegetables, honey, and meat. Any given day might be a big tuber day, or it might be a big honey day, or it might be a big meat day, depending. It's quite variable over time, day to day, week to week, even year to year. 
we now have about, not just my collaborators and I, but if you look at the published data as well, older published data, we can put together about three solid years of observation of what a HADS data looks like, a HADS diet looks like, I should say. And it's a real mix. You know, sometimes it's really meat heavy, sometimes meat's hard to come by. The gross average is about, you know, somewhere between 40 to 60% of the dietary calories are coming in from meat. Something like 10 to 20% of the dietary calories are coming from honey, which is just sugar and water. And the rest is coming from berries and roots. The other aspect of this that I think is interesting is their health. How healthy is this population? Oh, incredibly healthy. You know, um, so infectious disease is a real killer in these groups because they don't have modern medicine. They, They don't have... You know, in addition to not having electricity or plumbing or domesticated crops and domesticated animals, they don't have access to modern medicines. And so infectious disease is a real killer, especially for children. The gross sort of average life expectancy is quite low, but that's because you have so many little kids, sadly, that die from infectious disease that we could easily cure here in the West. But what they don't get sick from but that we have a hard time with in the West is things like heart disease and diabetes cancers and, and Alzheimer's disease and that kind of stuff. They, they seem to be pretty immune to that. All of these cardiometabolic diseases, these diseases of civilization, well into their 50s, 60s, 70s, even 80s. If you live to 15, you've got a better than even chance of living into your 50s and 60s. And so we have plenty of people in now that we've, we've studied in the Hadza, men and women who are in their 50s, 60s, 70s, even 80s, hardly any high blood pressure, much less heart disease no type 2 diabetes, you know, no obesity, none of the things that are killing us here in the industrialized world. And so when we look at their diet and sort of compare it to the average person in the Western populations, in our populations, would it be fair to say that their diet is higher in fiber and definitely lower in ultra-processed foods. There are sugars, so we can go there and talk about maybe why sugar by itself is not an inherent problem, but more so when it's packaged up with other things in these hyper-palatable foods, and we'll put a pin in that as well. But we've got these diets that are higher in fiber, they're lower in ultra-processed foods. I'm wondering as well, with regards to the animal products they are consuming, are they, are they similar to those that Western populations are consuming or are they tending to be leaner meats, lower in saturated fat, for example? Yeah, that's interesting. So um, work that uh, I've recently reviewed. So one of my, I've got two collaborators I always work with with the Hadza, Brian Wood and David Reichland. Brian Wood has spent more nights in a Hadza camp the last 20 years and he's probably spent in his own bed at home. And so he knows them really well. And he and I just recently put together a paper looking at diets in hunter-gatherer groups like the Hadza, as well as others, compared to modern sort of industrialized diets. And if you look at the literature on the fat content of wild game, like the Hadza eats, these are African wild game, versus the fat content of domesticated animals, domesticated cows and pigs, for example, there's about twice as many fat calories on a domesticated animal. And the fat that they carry is much more, a higher percentage of saturated fat, right? So the Hadza, they will eat all the organ meat. So they're getting fats that, that way. There's lots of fat in the brain, for example. So it isn't like they only eat the lean muscle. But it is absolutely true that the animals that they're eating are on average leaner and have a lower content of saturated fat than the animals that you and I might buy at the supermarket, right? If we go and, and get our 
beef and pork. If you've tuned in to the many episodes I've done focusing on cardiovascular disease, the leading cause of death globally, you'll be well aware that ApoB is a better biomarker for measuring our risk of having a heart attack or stroke than LDL cholesterol. The only problem is that not every pathology lab is set up to test ApoB levels. Fortunately, this has now been made easier by Inside Tracker, a leading health and wellness company founded in 2009 by experts in aging, genetics, and biometric data from Harvard, MIT, and Tufts that provides lifestyle advice based on your blood test results. With the new edition of ApoB, InsideTracker's ultimate plan now analyzes 44 biomarkers, including metabolic health markers like HbA1c, triglycerides, and blood glucose, important nutrients like vitamin D and iron, as well as hormones like cortisol, sex hormone binding globulin, free testosterone, and total testosterone, before giving you science-backed lifestyle advice to optimize your health and longevity. Your data tells the story of your health. With Inside Tracker, get to know your story and create a lifestyle that delivers better health for longer. Get 20% off the entire Inside Tracker store. To get started and redeem this offer, go to insidetracker.com forward slash Simon. That's insidetracker.com forward slash Simon. Hey friends, the scientific evidence on lifestyle habits that lead to longevity is clear. Now it's time to put this knowledge into action. I'm excited to announce the Living Proof Longevity Challenge, a 12-week program to build evidence-based lifestyle habits to optimize longevity. My team and I have transformed over hundreds of hours of conversations with experts on aging, nutrition, and exercise into a life-changing 12-week program that will challenge you to develop habits that lead to a longer, better life. This is a unique opportunity to gather health data about yourself that has the potential to change your life for the better. You'll start by testing 10 longevity biomarkers that tell the truth about where your longevity stands right now, today. Following that, you'll get a personalized longevity score to guide your 12 weeks of habit building that will boost your score and improve your biomarkers for the better. After the challenge, you'll retest your 10 biomarkers and see the proof of how powerful these science-backed habits really are. Head over to theproof.com forward slash livingproof to download your zero-cost copy of the Living Proof Longevity Challenge today. That's theproof.com forward slash livingproof. Look forward to joining you on this journey. You've got this graph in your book, it's on page 203, and it sort of looks at the diet macronutrient breakdown of different hunter-gatherer populations, the Hadza, the Chimane, the Schwa, and then some of the macronutrient breakdowns that have been popularized interpretations of ancestral eating that have very much been heavily promoted and, and I guess accepted over the last 20 years. And you've written sort of at length about these. With everything that you've observed and read and what we're talking about here, how is it possible that such a narrative has been pushed about ancestral diet being super, super low in carbohydrates and very, very high in fat, which seems to be at odds with what you're saying and the evidence? 
it's one of those funny narratives that's so compelling to some people that, that it sort of has taken off, I think, all out of proportion to how well it, it's, <laughs> it's established. The first push to try to put together ancestral diets in a sort of careful way was done by Lauren Cordain, and he was a nutritionist. He wasn't an anthropologist. And he did what I think, you know, any reasonable person would do, which is he got together all the data he could get from this ethnographic atlas, this old 1960s book that puts together all the ethnographic historical accounts of any hunter-gatherer group that ever had been come across and written down. And he was able to get 200 and some populations there that hunt and gather. And he just did a rough average. Now, the ethnographic atlas doesn't tell you percentage of diet from meats. It doesn't tell you percentage of diets from carbs and fats, surely. It gives you a score, one to 10, on how, quote unquote, important a particular food item is in the diet, right? So it's a really rough measure, really rough measure of the diet. And it systematically is going to miss a lot of women's foods because we know that the older ethnographic research focused on men rather than women for all sorts of obvious sort of sexist, chauvinist reasons. We know that that's the case. And also, a lot of the early reports, a lot of the, sorry, I should say, a lot of the reports in that book are overrepresented in places like the Arctic, which, you know, no plants grow in the Arctic. So obviously those populations are going to eat less plants than populations that live in the temperate and tropical climates. And so for all those reasons, Lauren did the best he could. I don't think he, you know, I don't think he was trying to be anything other than as careful as he could be. But the number he comes up with is, Meat is a higher percentage of the diet than plants are in most of these groups. And he focuses on, on the average he comes up with, which is sort of 60 to 70% of the diet comes from meat in some of his papers. Well, okay, that average number is kind of problematic because, again, there's all sorts of reasons that that number is going to be skewed and biased higher than what would be a more sort of reasonable number. But secondly, he chose to emphasize the average right? Rather than the variability. So even in his data, you can say, well, yeah, the average might be 65% the way he's done it, but there's an enormous amount of variability in all of these ethnographic accounts. All these groups are equally healthy from the purely vegetarian to the purely meat eaters are all very healthy. So to focus on an average is kind of to miss the point because the variability is sort of the point here. Cordain publishes the paleo diet and he gets very successful and he has a lot of success with that. And people kind of took this idea, this meat-heavy idea, and really ran with it. And now it's become something that's, I don't know what Lauren Curridane thinks about it. I've never talked to him about it, but I'm not sure it's even recognizable to those early versions of this paleo diet. It has become wrapped up in this weird culture of, you know, meat-heavy, and there's elements of sort of machoism in there, and, you know, you got to be a good hunter, and all this stuff. And it's all based on really thin and kind of poorly done anthropology. I think that's the short story about how we got to where we are today in this really weird space where paleo diet means meat heavy, no carbs. So tell me then if someone was going to adopt the paleo diet today with the food access that we have, what would that look like? Well, now when you say paleo diet, um, what do you mean by that? Well, maybe I should say a paleo diet. I suspect your answer is going to be that it could be highly variable. <laughs> yeah, it could be, right? I mean, it's also the case that all the foods you're going to buy at the supermarket are unrecognizable compared to what the wild foods would have been, you know, for any hunter-gatherer group. And so I don't even know that you, you know, could, short of 
going out and trying to live with the hods and forage like them, I think it'd be really hard. But yeah, I mean, there are some ideas. You would pick foods, pick diets that are high in fiber, that are minimally or zero processed, right? That don't have added sugars and added oils and added flavorings and haven't been, you know, processed to death to take all of their fiber out. You might lend, you know, tend towards higher protein diets. There's some evidence that there's more protein in, the, in a typical hunter-gatherer diet. But yeah, beyond that, beyond those principles, I think you sort of, it's, it would be quite variable. In the literature, high-protein diets do seem to be favorable when it comes to satiety and managing body weight. However, it seems the science world are not completely aligned when it comes to how much protein and the source. I've had Dr. David Sinclair and Dr. Volta Longo on my show and have read a lot of Elizabeth Blackburn's work, all scientists focused on aging and longevity, who I am sure you're familiar with. And they all tend to agree that it's not ideal to have too much protein when it comes to aging and longevity pathways. I'm interested in what you make of this. I think that's a, a tricky one. And I mean, I, I, I love those folks' work and I'm a big fan, but I am a little bit less convinced as, some, as an outsider to this. You know, the evidence that the low protein diets extend lifespans is largely from model organisms, right? There's, there's a nice calorie restriction study going on right now called the calorie study, which is this long-term calorie restriction thing. That seems to be showing the kinds of results you'd expect if calorie restriction were to be you know, a good thing for longevity. But they're not trying to restrict protein. They're just trying to restrict overall calories. And the strongest evidence I know of is that, you know, looking at like John Speakman's work on this, for example, is that you get most of your longevity improvement, uh, you know, when you look at the restriction studies from calorie restriction. And so I'm not as fussed when I look sort of globally at it, right? I think. Uh, I'd rather see people focus on getting enough protein that they feel satiated on fewer calories, are filling up on less sugars and fats, especially when they're added sugars and fats. And, you know, you, you can play it out in a number of different scenarios, but if, it, if that helps you keep at a healthier weight, right, then probably the, the health span bump you're going to get from that kind of approach is going to outweigh anything to do with, oh, you got the, your proteins from the wrong source or you were a little bit too high on protein. I'm less convinced that in a real world situation, that that's as much of an issue. And what do you think about protein source? Because that often comes up as well. And there's some research showing, and you know, it's observational, most of it. There's some substitution style analyses that show there may be some benefit in swapping calories from animal protein for calories from plant protein. What do you think about that research? And, and how do you sort of think about that in the context of the hunter-gatherer diets and you know, longevity zones like Okinawans and et cetera. I'm less of an expert on the sort of biochemistry of source for your protein is. So again, I read this more globally. And if you're getting your proteins from plant sources, then they probably are coming with a lot of other really good things, <laughs> right? So if you're getting your proteins from legumes, for example, uh, beans, you're, you're, you're going to be getting fiber with that. And that's you know, a good nutrient loads. And I think those are all good things to focus on. I don't think that protein from animals is necessarily bad, but you know maybe that comes with more fats and and things that maybe you want to be a little more careful about it, less fiber. So you know it, from the hunter gatherer perspective, they get a lot of their they get a mix of proteins from plants and animals both. You know it isn't just one or the other. And yeah, I, I guess I have for my own research less to add to that, but just thinking globally and thinking kind of as an anthropologist who has to, who deals with people in the real world where they're at. 
I think there are probably good advantages of getting your proteins from plants because of all the other things that brings with it. And there was something very fascinating that I read in your book, and I'll let you explain it in detail. But essentially, my interpretation was that despite the Inuit people eating a very, very high fat, low carb diet, they seem to have a gene mutation that is stopping them from entering ketosis. Perhaps you can explain that in specific terms, what's going on there, but also from an evolutionary perspective, does this suggest that there is potentially an advantage to a body running on carbohydrates from a survival point of view? No, so I'll answer the second part first. I'm not sure that that's true. I think you know, going into ketosis is a normal you know, starvation response in primates. Orangutans, for example, go into ketosis very happily when, when food is poor. It's, a, it's an understudied phenomenon, actually. Ketosis is one of these things that we, we probably ought to study in more primate groups, and we'd have better answers to some of these debates that go round and round. But as far as we can tell, you know, the human process of ketosis is no different than, than other apes is. Now, in the particular case of the Inuit and some other uh, Arctic groups, there is this interesting phenomenon that you say, one of the enzymes that you need to break down your fatty acids to a point where you make a ketone body, so you, the process of ketosis, one of the enzymes in that chain of events, the gene for that enzyme doesn't function in these populations. And the version of that gene that doesn't function seems to have been selected for. So there seems to have been positive selection to put this non-functional gene at really high frequencies in these populations. And because of that, as a general rule, they don't go into ketosis, or certainly not to the extent that we would do, even though they're on these really high-fat diets. Because the only way you can go into ketosis without starving yourself is to eat so much fat and protein that you have no carbs available at all. You force your body to only burn fats, and when your body ramps up that pathway you know, to the hilt, then you will start kicking up ketone bodies and being ketosis. Why that selection happened, what the advantage is there is tricky. The simple story is, well, natural selection just doesn't like ketosis, right? I'm not sure that's true. I, I, since I've written the book, I've thought more about it, and I don't know if I've implied that that simple story is as simple as it is. If I had more space to devote to it, maybe I'll, you know, in the second edition, I'll unpack it a bit more because the story ends up being a bit more complicated. It seems to be that enzyme is also implicated in things like growth and childhood growth, for example. And so we don't know exactly what natural selection was favoring there. It might not be as simple as pushing against the ketosis. But what we can say is that there apparently is no huge advantage to ketosis in this case that they kept that enzyme active, even though, even for whatever other selection pressures were happening on that pathway. So, you know, if there was really strong selection to maintain robust ketosis, right, then that pathway would have been protected evolutionarily. It wouldn't have been messed with. But instead, it was messed with evolutionarily. And so apparently, being in ketosis isn't so critical that, that you have to protect it. There we go. One more question before we start looking at this constrained energy model of yours. You mentioned that there are these great variability of sort of ancestral hunter-gatherer style diets across the world. And really, it sounds like it depends on geographical location, season, day-to-day -day variants, you know, what, what can they get their hands on? My question is around that variability, though, do you ever think about 
what the the best combination makeup of that looks like because you know it would seem that it's a simplification to assume that they're all just as healthy as one another or maybe they are or are you seeing that in particular areas where where hunter gatherers did have access to certain foods they had an advantage over other hunter gatherers that's a good question i think what you would need to test those ideas would be to have a robust set of hunter-gatherer groups that are all sort of living side by side and to really be able to compare community. And we don't have that anymore. So that's a little bit hard to answer that question, right? Because there are so few hunter-gatherers left. And who they got replaced by was farmers, right? So everybody likes to bash agriculture and bash farming. And there are some real problems that have come about with, with that way of producing our foods. But the advantages of farming is that you get a lot of energy from your crops when it's working well. And so you kind of outcompete and outproduce these hunter-gatherer groups, and it gets hard to. So there's a historical story there that we could unpack too about why farming takes off at the expense of hunting and gathering. I don't know that you can compare it. For example, there are hunting and gathering groups left in South America. Could we compare their health directly to the Hadza? You could, and we've done some reviews that look at that, and they're all kind of pretty darn healthy, you know. Even though the diets are going to be obviously different, you know, in a South American rainforest than in the savannas of Africa. Do we have detailed enough data on their diets and on their health to be able to, to start to nitpick and say, ah, but what about this little bit here and there? I just don't think we have that right now. And, and I'm not sure, we'll, I, you know, I'm, I hate to say it, I'm not sure we'll ever get it because we don't have, again, big, robust groups uh, anymore like we used to, hunter-gatherers that are still active. Yeah, I guess that's where some of the modern science on populations living today, you know, post-agriculture in Western communities works with the hunter-gatherer science and evidence and we can zoom out and look at everything as one big picture. It reminds me of uh, when barefoot running took off, right? I mean, this is, you'll remember 10 years or so ago. And my advisor in grad school is Dan Lieberman and he was uh, one of these big barefoot running science proponents. And, you know, barefoot running is great. A lot of people really enjoy it. it. For some people, it fixes injuries. You know, there's a variable response to it. And there was this argument that, well, that's the way that you're supposed to run because that's the way that we used to run. But what happened was, and what happens with all these kind of paleo ancestral ideas is people start to want to sort of cosplay as hunter-gatherers, you know? It's like, well, let's not just take the principles home. Let's, let's sort of have shoes like they have and try to have our diets like they do. And, you know that's kind of the wrong way to go about it, right? The right way to go about it is to say, oh, here are the principles we can learn from these groups. And now let's translate these principles into something sustainable and sensible here using the bench science and the, you know, the modern bench science and modern nutrition science here, as opposed to just sort of, again, trying to kind of cosplay as hunter-gatherers. I don't think that's very effective. You mentioned earlier that life is a game of turning energy into kids. And so I have a question for you. This often sort of comes up and I just want to follow on from this line of thinking. How do we sort of reconcile what we know from ancestral dietary patterns and the health of hunter-gatherer populations with modern science, given that the goals of many humans today are, are arguably a little different, not only to survive and sort of reach an age where they can reproduce, but also maintain their health and quality of life hopefully into their 70s, 80s, and even 90s. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, I think there are important lessons to learn from hunter-gatherers, but we shouldn't be too quick to throw away all the gains we've made. 
societally with uh, things like clean water, medicine, that kind of stuff, right? I mean, because the goals are different, right? I mean, people aren't hoping to have six kids or eight kids in their family, and they're not looking to have someone take over the family farm for that matter, or to grow up as hunter-gatherers like they are. I think what you want to do is try to take the good from each culture. You, you take the good from our cultures, you take the medicine and you take the clean water, say thank you very much. Uh, but you also think, okay, well, what are we getting wrong? And what we're getting wrong is the diet and exercise component of it. And so you want to kind of blend those things together. I don't think you have to sort of cosplay as a hunter-gatherer to do it right. I think you sort of bring the principles in. Sort of, again, following on from that, something that I also see is the talk about how healthy these populations are, the modern hunter-gatherer populations like Hadza and Chimane. And if my memory serves me correctly, the infant mortality rate is quite high, around 25 to 50% in some of these different tribes, right? Very sad. And most of that is due to infectious diseases. How does that then affect the sort of population cohort that you're studying in terms of a potential sort of survivorship bias? Is it the most resilient, healthiest people that end up becoming the adults, which is somewhat different to you know, populations in the West where we have much lower infant mortality rate? No, that's right. That's right. So this is an issue that we worry about a lot in demography generally and in these sort of comparative public health studies specifically. And so to sort of spell it out for the listeners, it could be that one of the reasons that we have such good heart health and such good, you know, no diabetes and that kind of stuff in the adults that we work with in hunting and gathering populations and farming populations is because everyone who would have developed those diseases is already dead, right? They succumb to infectious disease when they were young and they just don't show up in our adult cohorts when we're studying them 30 and 40 and 50 years later. That's possible, I suppose. However, what it would require is that people who are prone to heart disease later in life or prone to diabetes, type 2 diabetes later in life, or whatever other non-communicable disease we want to talk about, are more likely to develop infectious disease as children. And we don't have any good evidence for that, actually. There's no evidence that you know kids that tend to get sick when they're one and two and three years old are the ones who go on to get non-communicable diseases here in the West. And so that's a concern that we always think about. I just don't think the evidence supports the idea that, that that's what we're seeing. Okay, so constrained energy expenditure model. This is the bit that I was saying is mind-blowing. One of the, the things the Hadza like to do is a lot of walking. And if I recall correctly, I believe you stated around 12,000 steps a day for women and 18, 19,000 a day for men. So naturally, some may be thinking, well, Herman said before they have great health and they tend to be a healthy body weight and are not being sort of riddled by these chronic diseases that we're seeing so prevalent in our society. So perhaps that's explained by, or particularly the low body fat, perhaps that's explained by the fact that they're doing a lot of exercise. They're expending a lot of energy. And your theory, your model, and what you found through working with them in fact, suggests that's not the case. So can we unpack that? Can we start, I think, here with what metabolism is, work our way into what your original hypothesis was, and then what you found when you were studying the, the hearts of people? Yeah. So metabolism is all the work that all your cells do all day, 
right? So you've got 37 trillion cells, give or take, and there are all these little microscopic factories bringing nutrients in and you know, cutting them up and putting them back together and uh, sending signal molecules out or other kind of molecules out of the cell. So all kinds of work all day happening all over your body. And the work they're doing takes energy. Anytime you do work, it takes energy. And so collectively, all the energy that your cells are all using all day, we call that your metabolism, how many calories you're burning every day. So energy expenditure becomes synonymous with metabolism. So somebody like me, who's interested in evolution and ecology and biology, we get really excited about energy expenditure because it's a way of tracking all the body's systems simultaneously and watching how they respond to different environments and different lifestyles, right? So it's a way of sort of doing the forensic accounting of all the body's different systems. Where are the calories going, right? We, in 2006 or eight or so, like I was saying, my collaborators, Dave Reichlin and I, along with Brian Wood, got interested in how metabolism works in a hunting and gathering community because nobody had ever measured it before in living hunter-gatherers. And we knew it was important and we wanted to go and get those data. And so we were sure, because we know that how active hunter-gatherers are, we were sure they'd have really, really high daily energy expenditures. And people still tend to assume this, that if you are really physically active and you know they get about the punchline I like is a hot demand or woman gets more activity in a day than the typical American gets in a week, right? So they're really physically active. And we got funding from the National Science Foundation, got our, our time together and our permits together and all, you know, all the equipment together to go out and measure energy expenditures because we knew they would be sky high. So we get there, we spent, you know, the first time we went out there, spent the summer with the Hadza, living in their camps, measuring total daily energy expenditures using this isotope tracking technique, this gold standard technique that measures how much carbon dioxide your body produces to get a measure of the calories burned. And got the samples home, got the results back, and we're just totally floored because instead of having sky-high energy expenditures, the Hadza men and women were burning the same number of calories every day as folks in the US and in Europe and other industrialized countries. It was like, we couldn't believe it. We were asking the lab that we work with, Bill Wong at, at Baylor, who was a world leader in this technique, do the data look okay? Is there something that we did wrong, you know? And we went back and got more data and we've done it with other techniques. And now we've done it with other populations and we looked at other species and it's, the answer is the same again and again and again. These really physically active groups do not burn more energy every day than sedentary groups. It's a total shift in the way that we think about metabolism. And that's crazy, firstly, because exercise has been sold as a key tool for weight loss. And, and if there's any personal trainers or anyone listening that have done this, have communicated this message, firstly, there's no shame in that. This was the common belief. Don't turn the podcast off just yet because I'm sure later in the convo we will unpack why exercise does still have huge benefits. Okay, so it seems like what you're saying is no matter how much exercise we're doing and what we're moving, our body is very good at regulating the total amount of energy we're expending in any given day or on an average day over time. And so it must be then conserving energy elsewhere. 
can you explain this? Because this is the, the really interesting thing. Like you said, you've got someone who's sitting down at their desk all day. They're burning 3,000 calories. And then someone who's walking 18, 19,000 steps a day, also burning 3,000 calories. So what's happening? What is explaining this sort of phenomenon here? It comes back fundamentally to the foundation here, which is that you know, your metabolism is all the things that your body does, all the work that all your cells are doing. And even for those of us who are really physically active, and in fact, even for a Hadza man or woman, most of the calories burned every day are not burned on physical activity. They're burned on all the background stuff that we're not even aware of. You know, immune system and nervous system and reproductive system and all of this stuff, all the housekeeping, basically. And so what we think is happening is that when you have people who are more physically active and you, know, you have to have time to adjust to this new lifestyle. So if you start a new exercise program tomorrow, this won't kick in tomorrow. We can talk about that. But people who are adapted to a physically active lifestyle, their bodies have adjusted to spend less on other things. And some of that can be behavioral. So they might sort of you know, sit rather than stand, for example, or they might fidget less. So you can have behavioral things that save energy that way. Um, you could also, and, and we see some evidence for this, this is the exciting part, see physiological adaptations to this. So reduced inflammation, for example, reduced stress reactivity, lower cortisol and epinephrine levels in response to stress, moderated, but still very healthy, but moderated reproductive hormone levels. And we think all of these kind of suppressive effects of exercise, which are well-documented, people have known for decades that people who exercise have lower inflammation levels. People who exercise regularly have lower stress reaction, reactivity to stress. These kind of suppressive effects of exercise are one of the ways that the body's saving energy, making room for this more active lifestyle, right? At the end of the day, the top line number of calories per day is not so different, but the way those calories are spent is very different. And that's one of the big reasons exercises are good for you. So let's unpack that a little bit more. You're saying that the theory is that some of these systems in the body they're, I guess, in effect, dialed down a little bit in terms of how energy demanding they are, like the immune system you mentioned there. The theory is that by conserving energy through those systems, that is offering a health benefit to us as humans. Yeah, that's right. That's right. So, you know, one way to think about it is your body has all these competing demands, even within your body, right? Think about your body like like a business, right? And all the different components of the business, HR and manufacturing and R&D, and, and they all want a piece of the budget, right? And for a group like the Hadza, a lot of those tasks kind of have to get make it work on a small piece of the budget. They don't get as much of the energy as they might want because all the energy is being directed towards activity. Folks who are in the industrialized world, who sit on in desk chairs all day and aren't feeding all those calories to exercise, now, their immune system goes, oh, thank goodness, there's all this extra energy, let's, let's ramp up inflammation, let's ramp up stress reactivity, right? So all these things that normally would be tamped down because of sort of the juggling that a body would do in a physically active environment, now that juggling is completely thrown apart and it's a very different physiology and it's an unhealthy physiology for a lot of people. They have high baseline inflammation levels, high stress reactivity, et cetera, et cetera. So this is a way of kind of tying all of those observations together. I will say this is also a really active area of research. So we're still trying to figure out exactly how these dials get turned. But right now, this seems like this is what's happening. Could another way to look at this be that 
as there's less energy, you're burning more energy by doing the more walking, there's less energy available to these various systems that you're talking about. So they're sort of forced to become more efficient. Yeah, that's a fine way to think about it. I would push back a little bit. The metabolic researcher in me would push back and say, when you say efficient, you're just saying that they're using fewer calories. But efficient should mean that you're doing more with less. And I'm not sure they're doing more with less. I think they're doing less with less. And that's a good thing because we don't want an overactive immune system, right? We don't want an overactive stress reaction. So I think they're not doing more with less. I think they're doing less with less and we're healthier for it. Okay. So the the benefits may be just through the inherent benefits from dialing these systems down a bit. Yeah. That's that's the current hypothesis. Yeah. So the Hadza are people that are typically very lean, healthy body weight. In Western populations, that's not the case for the average person. We have an obesity pandemic or call it whatever you want to call it. And if the energy expenditure is relatively similar between these two different types of people based on energy balance and the way that we store fat, I would then be thinking that there must be a difference in terms of caloric intake between the two populations. Is that something that you've looked at? Yeah, well, so it gets interesting because on average, even in the West where people tend to become obese over time, your body does a remarkably good job matching energy in and energy out, right? So if you gain, let's say the average American gains two pounds a year, the American obesity crisis by the numbers is two pounds a year. And you go from being a normal weight 20 year old to being 40 pounds overweight by the time you're 40, right? Two pounds a year on average. Now, of course, it doesn't work exactly like that because you kind of go up and down and up and down, but just as a gross average, right? Two pounds a year. Two pounds is about 7,000 calories worth of food, 7,000 kilocalories worth of food. That's only about two days worth of energy expenditure out of a year. So two divided by 365 is the error, right? You've eaten two more days worth of food than you've burned off, basically, if you gain two pounds a year that's a tiny fraction of a percentage of mismatch between energy in and energy out. So your body's usually quite good at matching energy in and energy out. Someone in a Hadza population is incredibly good at it. They are the same weight from the time they're 25 to the time that they're 65. We're not quite as good at it. And the question is, is it because we're not burning enough calories? Well, no, because we just talked about how calorie expenditure is the same. The problem is we're eating too much. We're bringing too many calories in. So you're exactly right. I think putting some numbers on it helps because you realize this isn't that I'm eating, you know, a pound of food extra a day because you'd be 365 pounds heavier at the end of a year. You're, you're, it's just incremental. That suggests to me a regulation issue, that the regulation of intake, the reward systems in the brain that are tracking energy in just aren't doing a great job or, or aren't doing as good of a job as they normally would do on a normal unprocessed diet. In terms of like genuine critique or challenge that is data-driven, someone saying, hey, you know, look at this study that this potentially counters what you're saying here. What has been the sort of best counterpunch to, to the model? Well, the best counterpunch is that if you take someone and you put them on an exercise regime tomorrow and you track their energy expenditures over time, uh, certainly early on, so if, you, if your study only lasts eight weeks, it may well be that your energy expenditure at eight weeks is higher than it was when you started, right? We see that all the time. And it's because it takes a long time. It takes, well, it takes a couple of months at least, or longer even, to, for the body to adjust. If you extend that time frame and look at people a year out, 
or you know, year and a half, I think is the longest data I've seen on this, you see total energy expenditures that aren't as high as they should be. And so I look at that and I say, see, your energy expenditure is constrained. You prescribed 300 kilocalories a day to that person's lifestyle, and it's only up 50 or 100 calories a day, right? They're making adjustments. But, and then the counterpunch is, yeah, but there's still an extra 50 or 100 calories, so they haven't constrained it that much. And I would say, well, how much does it have to be to, to be count as constraint? And also, how long is the time frame that we're going to look at? Because someone in the Hadza community has had this lifestyle for their lifetime, and the person in your long-term study, as good as it is, has only had it for a year. And a year is a long time in research world, but it's not a long time in a life. So I take those critiques really seriously because what they're pointing out is both the time frame of this adjustment and the variability in this adjustment, right? It might be that we don't all, there might be variability in how much we constrain ourselves physiologically. There might be different diet or lifestyle cues that are pushing that constraint around. So I think this is a really exciting time to be looking at this question because there's just so much that we still don't know. And also, what happens if you just do an enormous amount of exercise? Like I had a, a friend recently do a triathlon and on his wearable, and we can talk about wearables. I'm sure you've got some thoughts on the accuracy, I guess, and how we could use wearables or if, if we should be using them at all. But he said he burnt 8,000 calories in that triathlon. And I wonder, like you said, this is not a day-to-day -day thing it's probably quite unreasonable to think the body is going to somehow offset 8,000 calories in a single day by dialing down the immune system and other processes, et cetera. Do you think even in that circumstance, that is something the body accounts for in weeks or months to come? Yeah, it could be. So we actually did a study looking at this question. It was the, the, the other critique that I often get is the Michael Phelps question, which is a version of what you're saying, which is, Michael Phelps supposedly ate 10,000 calories a day training for the Rio Olympics. And how is that possible, smart guy? Uh, <laughs> you know, <laughs> make that one work. So that, that is a, a funny example for a couple of reasons. One is it turns out that that was a bluff and, and probably Michael Phelps never ate 10,000 calories a day. But it does raise the point that people in extreme circumstances, elite athletes, for example, or people who are doing these you know, Arctic trekking kind of things, yes, can burn more than the typical 3,000 calories a day, let's say. Uh, but it, so we, we measured energy expenditures in people who ran a marathon a day from Los Angeles on the Western Pacific coast of North America, all the way across North America. They ran all the way to Washington, DC. So it's a marathon a day, six days a week, and then sometimes seven days a week towards the end for about five months. Right. And so we were able to measure energy expenditures at the beginning of the race. It wasn't really a race, but at the beginning of, of the event and at the end of the event, and a couple of things were really cool to see. First of all, in that first week of them running a marathon a day, their metabolism's acted just like it does in the textbook, where you take their baseline expenditure before they start running the race, and you just add on to that a marathon a day, right? And their energy expenditures looked exactly like that, straight out of a textbook. By the end of the race, it didn't look like that anymore. Their bodies had adjusted to save about 600 kilocalories a day. Now, that doesn't absorb the entire marathon. A marathon is about 2,600 calories a day, right? So they were still burning more energy than we would ever think of as sort of a, a normal habitual amount of energy. But their bodies were trying. And more to the point, if you track how long they maintain it for and how high their expenditures were, there seems to be this kind of ceiling that the human body falls under 
where if your friend does an Ironman, probably burn 12,000 calories a day in, in an Ironman. It lasts a day. If you do the Tour de France, that's a month. You can burn 8,000 calories a day for a month. If you do this race across the USA, you can burn about 5,000 calories a day for five months, right? And it keeps on getting pushed down. And that, that ceiling for what you can do forever is what we kind of saw with the Hadza data, which is we're all under that same ceiling when the time frames go to forever. So the biggest takeaways for me from the constrained energy model, or the biggest, is this understanding of the difference between exercise and diet in terms of their individual utility for weight loss. I've heard you talk about how exercise may perhaps play a greater role in weight management. And you refer to a certain study out of Boston, I believe, this idea that after someone has lost weight and are at a point where we want to avoid weight regain, can you walk me through this? Is this potentially a time where exercise is more important? Yeah, so this is a phenomenon that we've seen in several studies now. There's a couple of really classic ones, then you see it also cropping up in other studies as well. Once people manage to lose weight, they tend to keep it off better. First of all, they, they tend to lose it with dietary changes, right? So that is usually the really big lever that's, that's affecting their weight initially. But once they've lost the weight, the ones who are successful at keeping it off are the ones who add exercise into their daily lives. And that's a study that, like you say, was done, there's a classic one uh, among policemen in Boston. So uh, this is done in the late 90s or early 2000s, I think late 90s. And you had two cohorts of policemen, Boston policemen. One lost weight with just diet change alone. One lost weight with diet and exercise together. So you had these two groups of men. They both lost the same amount of weight. It didn't matter if you had exercise as part of the regime or not. They both lost the same amount of weight as if they were dieting. And then once they hit their target weight, they got reassigned to different groups. And some of them were assigned to keep exercising. And some of them, if they had been exercising, were allowed to stop. And other ones who hadn't been exercising were assigned to exercise. And other ones who hadn't been exercising kept on not exercising. So they got reshuffled. And what they found is that after they lost the weight, the ones who kept exercising, regardless of which group they started off in, the exercise group or not, the ones who kept exercising after they hit their target weight kept it off better. And the ones who didn't exercise tended to regain weight more quickly. There's also nice data from what's called the National Weight Loss Registry, which is this sort of survey-based registry. People can sign up if they've lost, I think it's 20% of their body weight or something like that, and kept it off for a year. And it's a way of finding these people around the country, really around the world, who have had really you know, have had good success losing weight, keeping it off. Now, that's a bit of a, a strange group because we don't have the counterparts, right? We don't have the ones who tried to lose weight and didn't, right? So it isn't exactly a balanced sample, but still it's informative. And what you find is across the board, really you know, high percentage of those people who claim to have been able to lose weight and keep it off will all tell you that they kept it off with exercise as part of the, the regime. And so exercise is doing something in that weight loss state. What is it doing? Well, that's a good question. I think we need to figure that out, actually. I think what it's doing is it's helping your body maintain the same kind of energy throughput it had before, but at a lower weight state. It also seems to be adjusting hunger and satiety better. So, you know, in general, my take on you know, where we go with exercise next is this. Uh, for a long time, we were chasing a pretty simple version of what exercise did, right? We were chasing a pretty simple story here, which is that 
If we exercise more, you burn more calories. And okay, maybe you build muscle too. That's good too. But those are all very sort of simple ideas of what exercise can do for you. And what we're beginning to understand, and this is what I cover in the book, but I, you know, I've been covering in my research now for 10 years, is that exercise doesn't have that simple kind of effect. Exercise doesn't change our calories per day the way we predict our bodies adjust. And it has all these you know, effects all throughout the body. And so exercise has a sort of regulatory effect on everything. And you know, we can show that in important ways. We can show that when we show, you know, look, if you start exercising 300 calories a day and we measure how many calories you're burning, you know, your total expenditure doesn't go up 300 calories a day. You adjust. It only goes up a little bit. Okay, so we can show it at that kind of global level, and that's what I've, I've been working on the last 10 years or so. Next is to dive down in. And now that we can all agree that it has this regulatory component that is doing a lot more than the simple story told us, well, now what's it doing? And I think that's a really exciting time. Uh, now is a really exciting time to be doing that work because I think we're just starting to really uncover all these mechanisms. Very. I'm interested in your thoughts on all of the wearables that are becoming very, very popular and also counting calories as tools for managing body weight for the everyday person. Do these have utility? What are your thoughts on these? Yeah, I, I think they have you some utility for the sort of psychology of exercise, right? I've got friends who love their Apple watches because they, they make sure they close their rings every day. You know, it's a real game for them. And uh, that's great, man. I mean, you know, heck, whatever gets you out, there's nothing wrong with that. Though, yeah, then I have on the other side, I've actually had people on social media, so, <laughs> this happened pretty recently, somebody tweeted out, oh, you know, Ponter's work's interesting because it shows that if you exercise more, you don't necessarily burn more, more calories or not as much as you expect. And somebody responded, well, what a load of BS. I've been wearing my Apple Watch and I can tell you that when I exercise more, I burn more calories, you know? <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, Ponter's wrong. Well, I might be wrong, but not because of your Apple Watch. Uh, <laughs> I think it's misleading in some ways, but hey, if it gets you out moving, that's all right. Well, Apple might be knocking on your door to come and consult and see if they can tweak their wearable. Hey, that'd be cool. That'd be cool. You know, a lot of it too, I think, you know, it's like buying a new bathroom scale or just checking your weight regularly, right? People do better when they check more often. And why? Well, because it's front of mind, you know? And a lot of our unhealthy habits are unhealthy because, you know, they just become this pattern of behavior that we do without thinking about it. And if that wearable on your wrist or that new bathroom scale or whatever it is kind of breaks you out of that and gets you more aware and more cognizant of how you're moving and eating, that can only be good, I think. Yeah, cool. That satisfaction and reward with closing the circle or, or hitting the target, it does serve a purpose. It, it makes developing new habits so much easier. What about this idea that some people have a fast metabolism and others have a slow metabolism? Is that a thing? You have two people who are same height, same body weight, same gender, etc., and have completely different metabolisms? Yeah, so there is... Uh, individual variability like that. Two people with all the same measurements, age, everything, could be different by 500 calories a day, easily. That wouldn't surprise someone who's worked in this world. And so, so uh, on one level, yes, some people are faster, some people are slower. Surprisingly, that doesn't predict who gains weight, right? So the slow metabolism person isn't more likely to gain weight than the fast metabolism person. And that's a real surprise. 
And it's telling you that when people tell you that they have a fast metabolism, what they are really usually mean by that is, I don't tend to gain weight easily. I eat whatever I kind of want to eat and I don't have a problem with my weight. The person who says they have a slow metabolism, usually what they mean by that is, gosh, I really struggle keeping at a weight that I want to maintain. And that has more to do with how your brain reacts to food and hunger and satiety signaling than it does with how many calories your body's actually burning. Okay, let's go into satiety and, and the brain. In the book, you speak quite a lot about ultra-processed foods. And they really do stand out, I guess, if you look at the average diet, they stand out as the most significant aspect of the diet that is different to a hunter-gatherer diet, for sure. I think in America, it's about 60% of calories coming from these foods. Here in Australia, it's 42%. UK, it's, it's around 50%. So it's making up a lot of the energy that we're bringing into our body. In the book, you speak about Kevin Hall's work and how ultra-processed foods affect our hypothalamus. Can you speak to this area of the book and, and why you've landed on this as what we should be zooming in on thinking about if we are to correct obesity? Yeah, yeah. This is a work that Kevin's done and, and, uh, and Stephen Guillenet has also written a, a book called The Hungry Brain, which talks a lot about this as well. And the idea is this, that your brain, the hypothalamus, is, is at the center of this multi-pronged system that is both sensing energy that's coming in to the body and the nutrients coming into the body when you eat. And it's also sensing, it also has a hand on your metabolism because it controls through the thyroid gland, it controls energy expenditure systemically. And so hypothalamus also kind of helps determine it's part of the signaling pathways uh, of how hungry you feel, then how full you feel after you eat. What Kevin has shown, Kevin Hall at the NIH here in, in the US, you can take meals that are matched for the protein content, the carbohydrate content, fat content, even fiber content. And if those calories are presented to somebody as hyper-processed foods, ultra-processed foods, they will over-consume them compared to the non-processed foods and over-consume them to the tune of an extra pound a week, right? And so he's done this in these really clean, beautiful, inpatient, highly controlled studies. And it's the only evidence I know of that consistently shows overeating. And basically what you're looking at is dysregulation of the hypothalamus in managing calories in and calories out. If you change the carbohydrate content of the diet, that doesn't consistently lead to overeating or help with weight loss. If you change the protein content, the uh, fat content, well, protein content is actually interesting. Protein could get you higher satiation earlier, but if you basically flip carbohydrate and fat contents of diets, that doesn't get you to change intake as easily as the ultra-processed foods. He's actually followed up really nicely recently with a study looking at ketogenic diets. Do people tend to over-consume on ketogenic diets or do they tend to over-consume on low-fat diets? And there again, the surprise was people tend to, if anything, eat more on the ketogenic diet. Uh, so anyway, all of this gets to the point that it's the diet and it's the modern changes in the diet, these ultra-processed foods, which would have never existed before in our history, that is what I think is causing this dysregulation in the brain and causing us to overeat and, and over to mismatch our calories and, and get to overweight and obesity. And what's interesting, we, we mentioned this before, is that it doesn't seem to be, say, sugar 
in isolation. That's the villain here. And you mentioned the Hadzer and, and honey. So what you're saying is rather than it being a single nutrient, it's the combination of these being put together by food scientists to, to be hyper palatable and simply irresistible. Yeah, I mean, these foods are literally engineered to be overconsumed because that's how these companies make money. And I don't even think it's a malicious thing on their part. I don't think they're out there. You know, I don't think these food scientists are working away hoping to make people obese, right? But when they've done a good job, the way they measure that is that these foods fly off the shelves. And, you know, you're basically pitting these hyper-engineered, ultra-processed foods with all these additive flavorings and extra sugar and extra oil. And you're pitting those against natural foods, whole foods that aren't engineered that same way. And of course, the hyperpalatable foods win every time, you know? And so it really becomes a sort of societal struggle then. It puts a new lens on this, right? I mean, the way we fix obesity then is, is to try to get a handle societally on the availability and of these hyper-processed foods. You emphasized earlier that the Hadza diet contained an appreciable number of calories from honey, which is essentially glucose, fructose, and water. With that in mind, and the fact that you, you've stated this is a healthy population, they're not living with type 2 diabetes or fatty liver disease, what do you make of the, the sort of online rhetoric that sugar is inherently bad, that it damages blood vessels, triggers high levels of insulin, causes fat storage, causes diabetes, you know, everything that you've no doubt seen uh, for a decade or more? Yeah, um, it's a shame the Hatha haven't read any of that stuff. <laughs> they don't seem to be. They don't seem to understand that. Uh, yeah, it's not just them. You know, um, other groups eat a lot of honey as well, and even groups that aren't don't eat a lot of honey. A lot of these subsistence groups eat tons of carbs. I just think you know the carbohydrate insulin model of obesity and this idea that sugar is a uniquely bad nutrient for you. I, I just don't, it's, it's compelling, right? It makes a great story. And I think a lot of us were very interested to see where that would take us. And people went and studied and, and, and measured uh, insulin responses and satiety responses to high carb diets or even higher sugar diets. And none of it's panned out, you know? And so you have work by people like Kevin Hall and John Speakman who have looked at this in detail. And, you know, I, I'm very much convinced by their take that it just doesn't it just doesn't hold water, this, this idea that sugar is some unique poison. Now, look, I'm not trying to tell you to eat more sugar. Uh, you know, I, it's nothing good about it for you in terms of nutrition. But the idea that it's sort of uniquely bad for you or uniquely bad, dangerous for weight gain, I think the data don't support that. And, you know, my own sort of, again, sort of anthropological, ecological data on what people eat in these healthy populations don't support it either. They're eating tons of sugar, tons of carbs, and they're fine. I think that that was a nice idea, but you know, there are so many beautiful ideas that get slain by ugly facts and that's just how science goes. And just because your idea is pretty <laughs> doesn't mean it's right. And, and I, I think that idea is, it's time to, to put that one to bed. Yeah, I think as particularly with honey, I see people comparing it to high fructose corn syrup, right? I mean, macronutrient wise, it's very close somewhat overlooking the types of foods that high fructose corn syrup is coming in. And therefore, people who are exposed to high fructose corn syrup are exposed to a completely different dietary pattern than someone who's eating 
all these whole foods and having an isolated form of sugar like honey. Absolutely, absolutely. I mean, why is sugar associated with such bad health outcomes in the West? Well, where do we find sugar? You find it in all this nasty processed food that's had every good thing taken out and a, you know, a bunch of questionable things, to be polite, uh, put in. So of course people who eat lots of sugar get sick because that's the sugary foods are the ones that are terrible for you. But that doesn't mean it's the sugar that's doing it, right? And maybe that distinction is almost unimportant for the person who's shopping in the supermarket. Maybe, the per- maybe it doesn't matter for you know, the parents that are out shopping for their family. They can just look at the sugar numbers and go, oh, this is has sugar, I'm not gonna have it, that's fine. But for those of us who are trying to do the real research on this, and for those of us who are interested just in how this really works, I think touting this idea, banging on this idea that sugar's the evil thing there, that it's not helpful and it's not right. And it can also get get people starting to fear fruit as well. <laughs> yeah, that's the craziest thing, right? You somehow you shouldn't eat apples. You, I mean, give me a break, man. Really? I want to dig into the solution side of things here. So to sort of summarize, and, and you can let me know if I've got this correct, but essentially where you've landed and, and your book's not putting forward a particular diet brand or anything like that, but it is in a way talking about a theme, I guess, a theme of eating that seems to be consistent with good health. And there is some variance in that, but the commonalities are it's built on whole foods. It's minimizing calories from ultra processed foods that are very easy to consume. These foods we're talking about, it could be advantageous to be rich in, in protein and fiber, it seems. And at the same time, these diets tend to be relatively low in saturated fat or at least lower than, than Western populations. Would that be a fair summary to this point? Yeah, I think that all those points are, are, are yeah, absolutely. Okay, so then the question is both at an individual level and a, and a community level, how we can get uh, nudge people towards this way of eating. And also if we're looking at weight loss and and the studies, and you mentioned the Biggest Loser study, we know that severe caloric restriction and doing a lot of exercise and losing a lot of weight very quickly doesn't seem to be great for long-term weight loss and health. So what's the approach here first on an individual level? Then let's come to a community. So at an individual level, is this about forming new habits despite the environment we live in? Yeah. So at the individual level, you know, I think you've got to get to, if you're not in a weight that is healthy for you, or if it's going the wrong direction, you've got to find a diet that makes you feel full on fewer calories, right? And it's as simple and as hard as that. And the principles that'll help you get there are higher protein foods, higher fiber foods, lower processing in your diet. Those are all good levers to pull to try to get you to a diet that feels fulfilling on less. And this is the reason that people have such great success, for example, on low carb diets, right? Low carb can be a great way to get there because if you basically take all the high carb foods off the menu, right, then you're gonna, you limit your your menu choices. Um, There's this thing called sensory specific satiety that you eat the sort of the same kinds of flavor palette all the time, you feel full sooner. Um, You might also have a higher protein content in your diet if you're doing it in a healthy way, a low-carb diet. And so you can get there with low-carb. You can also get there with vegan, potentially, if you have a high-fiber diet and you're getting a lot of good plant proteins from beans and that kind of stuff, you know, you'll fill up on less that way too. Or some people do the Mediterranean where it's mix and match and you're focusing on food quality and and low processing. So I think that's, you know, in terms of the, the diet wars, 
I think we can just, if we were smart, we would just move past all that. And we would say, look, here are the principles that work. Here's a bunch of ways that it might work for you. And you find a way that that fits your preferences. So finding that diet for you is the way we start at the individual level. There's also some sort of just behavioral things that we can do. And, you know, this is, I'm not a clinician and I'm not a psychologist, but talking with people in this space over the last few years with this work, some really important things to think about. One is if you have foods that you know you overconsume, you know, for me, it's Coca-Cola. I, you know, I, 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 soda, I can't stop drinking it. So if it's in my house, I'm going to drink it. So I don't put it in my house, right? Because I know I won't say no. I know that I will have a moment of weakness. For somebody else, it might be potato chips. For somebody else, it might be, who knows, ice cream. So just don't have it in your house. If you don't have it in your house, you can't overconsume it. And the second thing is, and this is a, a, an insight that a clinician shared with me earlier this spring, talking about this stuff from this book, is that people tend to do a lot of sort of behavioral patterned eating, even when they're not hungry. So, you know, why is nighttime eating associated with obesity? It's not because those calories weigh anymore at night, but it's because nighttime eating is not driven by hunger. It's driven by the fact that you're in front of the television and it feels like a good time to have a bowl of chips. And, you know, so you're eating a lot of junky calories. You're not even hungry for them necessarily, but it's just sort of this patterned eating that you do unconsciously. So individually, that's what I would say. Find a diet that works for you, more, fewer calories that make you feel full, and then clean up your house and clean up your habits. Okay. And as unpopular as it is, there really is no quick fix, so to speak, despite what we're often sold. No, that's right. And that's why the, uh, the diet evangelists don't like my book. And that's okay. I'm at peace with that. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, so so at a community public health level, I'm sure you've given thought to changing the environment. You've spent time with the Hadza. You've got a feel for that environment, being there, living it, eating with them, spending a lot of time with them. And of course, you live in a Western environment as well. So you've seen both worlds. How do we reshape our environment within our sort of modern world that we've created to change the the average dietary pattern and essentially just make it easier for people to, by default, adopt a less processed diet? Yeah, well, I mean, I think that is going to have to be some hard economic choices because there's, you know, you walk into a supermarket, at least here in the States, maybe it's different in Australia, and, you know, 80% of the footprint of that supermarket is filled with processed foods, right? That's where the money is. That's where the advertising is. That's where, you know, the, the big food companies are putting their resources because that's where they get the best margins and it's, it's shelf stable and all those reasons. So I think, I, it, look, if I knew how to do it, to wave my wand and do it, I, I would, maybe I would switch careers and, and, and jump into economics or something. But I, we've got to change the economics of this. Right. And, and make the whole foods around, you know, in the vegetable and uh, the butchers and the, you know, the baker's shop, make, make those all a lot more attractive economically and available for that matter. I mean, there are lots of places in the States where it's hard to even find, you know, the unprocessed foods because your supermarket choices are all dominated by corner stores and places that, you know, the food has to be shelf stable for a long time. So I, I don't know how we do it, but I think that we have to start pricing in the health costs of the food 
whether that's through something like a tax or something like that, into the price of the food in the supermarket. Maybe that would push people around. And then one thing I'll just to follow up with that is, is the foods that we put in front of our kids. So school cafeterias and other places where we do have really good control over what people are eating, kind of by default by the way things are arranged, we need to be more serious and, and, and better, more thoughtful about those situations. Absolutely. I think a big part of this will be working with the farmers and understanding that they're there to produce food and support the community. But currently there are a number of subsidies that make it much more attractive to produce the sort of monocrop corn and soy that ends up in these ultra processed foods. And how can we incentivize them to create real food, more whole food that then goes into the community? Now, evolution continues and, and right now, you talked about the lineage and, and hominins before and where we kind of split off from chimpanzees and two and a half million years ago, I think you said. So right now, we're Homo sapiens, the only hominin on, on planet Earth. Will there likely be another form of hominin in the future? Like, is that something that you've thought about when you look at the history? We might change. I mean, you know, it depends on how long we last, right? We've only been around about 300,000 years. Most species get about a million year run as a rough average. So we're about a third of the way through our species expected time on earth before we go extinct or change. There's nothing to say we will change. You know, evolution doesn't, crocodiles have been crocodiles for a long, long time. Sharks have been sharks for 500 million years, almost. 300 million years, I guess I should say. So there's nothing that, that means you have to change. If you have a, a strategy that works great, it kind of needs to do it forever. I think the bigger question will be, do we blow ourselves up or do we starve ourselves out? And if we don't do those things, you know, we might change a bit, but then we might also get good at, at engineering a world that keeps us where, right where we're at. Because just like crocodiles, there'll be no reason to change. We'll be doing our good human job, fitting into our good human environments. So I don't know. I think it's up to us, really. It's really hard to predict. And finally, where to from here with regards to your work? What questions do you have that are unanswered that you would love to explore in, in future research and perhaps we can all look out for? Yeah, well, we're, we're drilling down at the moment to try to figure out exactly how exercise you know, pushes the levers and, and, and turns the dials on our other physiological systems. So that's work that's happening right now. And you know, I don't have any results to share with you at all, but that's, uh, it's all in, in prep and, and, and in planning right now. So that's exciting for me is drilling down on exactly how your body keeps energy expenditures the same. We're going to continue to broaden our scope and, and to learn from all these other cultures, right? So we've got work in northern Kenya now, a community called the Dosnich. I'm collaborating with people who are doing cool work with reindeer herders in Finland, you know, across the globe, other, other populations too. So we're going to continue to learn from other, these other groups. And that's going to be exciting. Yeah, and that, that ought to, in general, those two directions kind of diving in, but also going out ought to keep me busy for a long time. Incredible. Well, thank you so much for joining me. Uh, please do come back and, and let's have another chat potentially when some of your future research comes out. I love your work. I'm so happy that you took the time to write this book, Burn. It is incredible. It's very enjoyable to read. I really recommend that everyone goes out and grabs a copy. I'll put a link in the show notes that is a direct link for anyone who wants to buy a copy of Burn. If someone wants to keep an eye on your work or, or connect with you online, where's the best place for them to do that? 
Sure. So, um, you know, you can find us, uh, what our lab's up to at, at Duke University, which is where I work, you know, online. And if you want to find me on social media, I'm most active on Twitter. So at Herman Ponser. Um, I'm on Instagram too, at H Ponser. And if you are excited and interested in the Hadza community and the efforts we're doing, uh, making there to kind of keep them a sustainable and healthy community and give back, I'd encourage you guys to go to uh, hadzafund.org. We started a, a, a charitable organization that sort of tries to look after and give back with the Hadza community, looking after their health and you know, cultural sustainability and, and, and everything else. So H-A-D-Z-A-F-U-N-D.org and you can check out what we're doing there with the Hadza. Amazing, thanks Herman. Thank you. There we go, my homo sapien friends. Bit to digest there, right? Isn't the constrained energy model fascinating? I can say, without a doubt, Dr. Ponce's research, his book, and this conversation has changed my perspective on the role of exercise in promoting weight loss. One other thing I'd like to leave you with here, I think it's great having someone like Dr. Ponser on the show who eats differently to myself. I'm not really interested in just speaking to people who see things exactly the same as myself. But if we zoom out, the theme of eating that I speak about in my book is very consistent with where Dr. Ponser has landed. A whole food diet rich in fiber that contains good amounts of protein which if from animal protein is from lean animal foods that are low in saturated fat. I agree absolutely with that and agree we are opportunistic omnivores, which essentially means we have choice. Where we probably see things slightly differently, and that's okay, is that I am a bit more bullish on the benefits of plant protein over animal protein for healthy aging and longevity. Like Volta Longo and the likes of Dr. Christopher Gardner and David Katz, I'm pretty convinced that substituting calories from animal protein for plant protein reduces one's risk of various chronic diseases and total mortality. I'm not sure we have the science to say it needs to be 100% plant protein, but certainly plant predominant, which means more protein coming from plants than animal sources. Plant protein is even more favorable than white meats like chicken when it comes to certain risk factors like cholesterol. And white meat is often touted as the healthier of the meats. There's a, a great randomized controlled trial conducted in 2019 by Bergeron et al. that showed this. And I actually make mention of this in my book on page 129 reference 115. I'll pop that study into the show notes too for anyone who wants to dig into it. It's a fantastic study design. I would agree with Dr. Ponser that the benefit of eating more plant protein, chickpeas for example, over sources of animal protein may well be more to do with what is coming with plant protein, the fiber and phytochemicals, etc. But whatever the mechanism is, the evidence does suggest swapping calories from meat for legumes, for example, is going to shift most people's diet to a more health-promoting one. I actually think this idea of protein source 
is more important than protein amount or protein restriction. As Dr. Ponce stated, which I also agree with, the protein restriction studies are mostly in animal models. And really, it seems that calorie restriction is more important for longevity. In fact, I believe those following a plant predominant or plant exclusive diet really do need to focus on eating ample protein, particularly people over the age of 65, when a higher protein intake is clearly associated with better health outcomes. Maintaining strength and good bone density is critical for healthy aging. And from a nutrition point of view, protein is central to that. So don't be shy on the beans, chickpeas, lentils, tofu, tempeh, etc. That's my two cents anyway, for what it's worth. And with that, we did it. If you enjoyed today's episode, please do share it on your socials and tag me. I'd love to hear your thoughts and feedback. Thanks for hanging out with me all the way to the end here. I appreciate you. Look forward to doing it all again in a few days time. Until then, remember, more plants, my friends, more plants.